And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Jody Hassett Sanchez. Jody Hassett Sanchez is the president of Pointy Shoe Productions, a serious film company with a silly name that focuses on issues of faith and culture. She spent 17 years working in network television news, most recently at ABC News, where she covered religion, culture, and education for World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. She was also a USC Annenberg Getty Arts Journalism Fellow. Please give a very, very warm welcome to Jody Hassett Sanchez. Thank you. As our academics are being mic'd here, although we're not in a cathedral, I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes for just a minute. Don't not fall asleep, but just close your eyes because I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that it's Saturday night in a major European city. A restless crowd has been gathered in downtown square all day. Many have traveled from other countries. Suddenly the mob grows restless. Some people even become hysterical. All eyes turn to the tight-knit group of individuals encircled by protective guards. They're trying to cross the crowded square. Two young girls manage to put past, push past the security. They try to grab at the clothing of the mysterious individual in the middle. They try to grab something to take a memento home with them. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Am I talking about a top soccer player for Barcelona? <laughs> or Justin Bieber, perhaps? Actually, no. This was a scene 400 years ago in many a European city, and these groupies were gathered there for a glimpse of the body of a recently deceased holy man who was being escorted to a church or a cathedral where he would soon be venerated, a saint. So we're saints, the celebrities of the day, and who are our saints today? <clears throat> Joining us tonight to start this conversation, to my left, is Professor <clears throat> Rudolf, Conrad Rudolph, who's a professor of medieval art history at UC Riverside. He's the author of a number of books and articles on medieval artistic culture, including Pilgrimage to the End of the World, The Road to Santiago de Compostela, uh, a trek he's made himself, and I hope we hear about tonight. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about this. This is a two and a half months and a thousand miles, yes? Yeah. And to his left is um, Ms. Candida Moss, who's a professor in New Testament and early Christianity at the University of Notre Dame. She's published four books and more than 25 articles and essays on biblical and early Christian literature, history, and thought. Her latest book, The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom, has provoked all sorts of conversations. And to our, my far left is Leonard Primiano, who's the chair and professor in the Religious Studies Department at Cabrini College in Radnor, Pennsylvania. He's also busy finishing an aesthetic biography of the Canadian religious artist, Sister Anne Amin. Um, he's been known to weigh in on high, low, and pop culture, everything from True Blood to Catholic Kitsch, of which he's completing a major study. Leonard's personal collection of Italian Catholic ex votivo art is coming to a campus near you quite soon. Mm -hmm. So with that, I thought we could start by talking a little about who saints were and who they are. So what I'd like to do is maybe have our talk at the beginning be a bit about some of the better known saints. Um, these were not wimps who were sauntering around with um, halos, but folks who really challenged the social norms of the day, yes? Yeah, very much so, yeah. You know, something you said reminded me uh, that these saints were like, the, 
the rock stars of their day. Not everybody wanted to be a saint. Not everyone wanted to be a monk or a priest, believe me. But someone like Bernard of Clairvaux, when he'd travel across Europe and would come to village after village, town after town, thousands of people would come out to see him, mobs, um, like uh, a soccer star from Barcelona. Um, it was a different kind of world. They filled a gap that today I think maybe is, is filled by celebrities and so on. But these, yeah, as a group, were tough people. They were um, uh, people who very often uh, took a stance against contemporary expectations. Right, and yeah. they, they were feisty. Yeah, they were sassy. They thought outside of the box. You know, we have all of these stories of martyrs getting into wars of words with people who were very important at the time. And we have young girls who had no education speaking out against Roman governors. And many of the saints, we think of them as sort of quiet and peaceful and always praying, but they had these scandalous backgrounds. And they had these sort of deeply erotic relationships with Jesus. We think of them as quiet and composed, but in actual fact, they were brash. They were action heroes. And when they died, people would name their children after them. Hmm. Yeah, typical early Christian saint would be uh, a female whose, according to the old stories, her father was the Roman governor. And he was persecuting the Christians. He would find out, in fact, that his daughter was a Christian. She would not recant, and he would have to have his own daughter executed. A typical kind of early Christian saint. So it's so a different kind of teenage rebellion. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Except instead of having sex, you would refuse to have sex. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was uh, another type, a female who would disguise herself as a male and would join a monastery. Uh, And then this... Why to become a monk? Because it's a more ascetic life uh, than, say, maybe being a, uh, a nun. And the typical um, sort of outcome is that at one point, this person is accused of raping uh, a female visitor. And the, the medieval artworks then would show her saying, no, but that isn't true. Yeah, and you see these then carved on the capitals in the churches, Vesale autant. This is a, 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 a typical medieval type of miracle. Tale. So we have racy literature and photos, and we have romantic, almost erotic literature that from some of the early female saints in t- describing their love of God. So it's clearly not a staid group. No. Go ahead. Can I say, first of all, to the audience something? For those of you that have never experienced somebody like me before, <laughs> number one, I'm not currently dying. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, I've never smoked a day in my life. (laughs) And number three, it does not hurt me to talk. In fact, I can talk for hours. (laughs) In fact, my students wish it did hurt me to talk. I I wanted to add the thought that, of course, to make sure that people realize that the earliest saints were the martyrs and that it was those individuals within Christianity that died for their faith mm-hmm. that were acclaimed by the general public to be holy people. That's really important that people have that historical basis to begin with. That's right, and one of the important <coughs> parts about that is that they were acclaimed by the people. The people made the saint, not a legal process in the early days. Well, maybe it will be helpful for this group in case there's anyone in the audience interested in the job to speak a little bit about how one whatever time frame you want to speak of actually qualified for the job. Was it the three M's? Miracle, martyrdom, and what's the third one? Mortification, yes. 
Well, I would say in the early days, you didn't need to meet any of those qualifications. Certainly the first saints were martyrs, but in order to be recognized as a saint, what you needed was to be charismatic. You needed to inspire people. And then once you got that local interest and that local support, they would acclaim you as a saint and spread the message of your miracles, your story to everyone else. It was only in the Reformation period that we start to see real qualifications for sainthood when Martin Luther observes that there were more disciples buried in Germany than there were actual disciples. <laughs> the Catholic Church has to respond. It's counting. <laughs> so then the church took over the job. Well, they tried, right. right? So now, and I think others can speak to this more than I can, now we have strict qualifications for sainthood, but always there's this local element of people being inspired by a story and wanting to make someone a saint. Yeah, I don't want to criticize the church, but they, they always want to have control. I mean, I mean this in the sense it's their business, right? It's their business, and they always want to have control over that process. So beginning, I think, in the late 12th century, or the early 12th century, it begins to become a legal process, whereas before that, it was a question of legal, uh, uh, local recognition. Mm-hmm. But very often, your, your mention of someone being charismatic, very often what would actually make a cult of the saint, cult is a technical term, it's not a negative term, mm-hmm. um, is a charismatic person who is not necessarily that saint, but the person who comes along and builds up that cult right. um, in many different ways. Yeah, so a wealthy patron. Yeah, they manage that, yeah. yeah. Very much like um, an agent for a movie star. <laughs> right, you need financial backing. That's right. And for the contemporary world and contemporary saints, the first thing that the person, the first qualification for sainthood, in case anybody's confused about Mother Teresa, the various popes, is you have to be dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's really important. And, and let's, what about miracles? Now, what's the deal in miracles today? Well... It was, it used to be, even in the 1960s, that there had to be two healing miracles for beatification, which is where the person is is called blessed, which is, in fact, the second stage of sainthood. Being called venerable is the first stage, where it's essentially somebody does a graduate student paper on your life, and they try to get all the dirt they can about you. And then once they find out that there's nothing seriously scandalous, you're you're declared blessed, you're declared venerable, you're a holy person. Then you wait for the family miracles, you collect and analyze those by both, I've been told, a group of Catholic and non-Catholic doctors at the Vatican. Once those two were accepted, then the person would be beatified, and then canonization would come with the, the, the declaration of saint would come with two more healing miracles. Now that was changed within the, in the 70s into the 80s, so that now it was one healing miracle for beatification and one for canonization. And I've read, at least, that in the case of Pope John XXIII, that there is only one, and that Pope Francis has said, let's push it along. Mm-hmm. and let's canonize him next April along with John Paul II. And so it's, it's of course, that's this fascinating sort of political business right. going on of this very sort of conservative recent pope with the pope who is much more progressive from the 1960s. And that is the source of the term devil's advocate, the person who is responsible for finding any fault with that particular person. The dirt, yeah. So in Washington, D.C., where I live, if you want to go to the front of the line, you hire some good lawyers and a PR firm. So if you want to bump 
to the front of the line here, you get a bishop, you get a few, um, a committee, and then you were telling us back in the green room, Leonard, about some folks actively out there looking for miracles. Well, you're not going to be a saint unless you've got some real backing, as you've said, and you've got to have either a religious order or a tremendous interest by people that are organized. And there are these things called guilds, and the guilds for directed to specific saints really work to get the saint recognized and prayed to. So that there's no one is a saint unless there's been this, as Conrad said, this groundswell of interest in this holy person, especially around their grave. It's very interesting that Cardinal Bernardin in New York and Chicago when he died, that there is a lot of interest around his grave already. So they think that he one day is going to possibly be on the road to sainthood, hmm. the former bishop of Chicago. But uh, once that happens, then something's got some one or some organization called the Guild grabs on to this idea of honoring this person in this way and begins prayer, and especially, obviously, prayers to those people who are ill. And I've been told stories of guilds going even into cancer wards and children's hospitals and asking parents, do you want us to pray for your child? Would you like a relic of some sort? And if the healing happens, would you please report it to us so that we can help that? And so it's, I mean, it, it's funny that we get a laugh, but it's a very serious thing. And I can assure you, I've been sick. If you're sick, you don't laugh. <laughs> The thing about bodies is a funny one. It seems very strange to us, but it really comes out of older, late Roman culture. And the medieval term for relics, which are typically is the, the bones of, a, it could be more than that, but the bones of something was pignora. And that's a word that really doesn't translate well into um, modern English, but a pignora is uh, something you leave behind, like at a pawn shop, something you leave behind, you're gonna come back and reclaim. So the idea is that that saint will come back at the end of time when the body is reconstituted uh, with the uh, uh, resurrection of everyone's bodies according to uh, traditional Christian thought at the end of time, and you want to be buried near that person so you can be the first one to say, take me with you to heaven, right? Like the warrior in a battle, you fall, you're, you're right. defeated, you fall at his feet, he'll save a couple of people, but the rest of them will be slaughtered, right? And so it right. operated in yeah. a similar <laughs> manner. Yeah, it's, it's like real estate, or it's like a seating plan at a wedding. The closer you are to the couple, the sort of more established you are at that gathering. So the closer you are physically buried to a saint, the better it will go for you on Judgment Day. Interesting, interesting. And also remember, until recently, saints, the relics of saints, were in every Roman Catholic altar. And it's only been in the years since the Second Vatican Council that those relics have been removed. And so the idea of the liturgy of the church was always meant to be said over the remains, the sacred remains of a saint. Hmm. Hmm. And I want to, we're going to spend a lot of time on relics because that's, that's the most exciting stuff, I think. But I didn't realize that you can be unsainted. And <laughs> you, you can't walk a block in, in, in Rome without running into somebody in the, with the St. Christopher's Medal. So I was scandalized to learn that he had been unsainted along with St. Catherine and some other popular saints back, uh, when was it, in, in 1969. So how does that happen? What do you have to do to be unsainted? 
Well, in the case of St. Christopher, who's really popular with this beautiful story of him carrying, you know, on his back across a river and drowning, you know, it's a wonderful story. It turned out there wasn't the historical evidence. And over the past 400 years, the Catholic Church, in response to criticisms by Protestants, has had to sort of clean out all of these saint stories. What's interesting about St. Christopher is that he's pushing back. Everyone's wearing their St. Christopher medals. And this is always, this is part of the struggle. It's the groundswell of popular support versus the institutional church. And try as they might, the Catholic Church hasn't managed to get rid of St. Christopher. People will venerate the saints that they love. So in a way, it goes back to that popular acclaim that we had before the Vatican got involved. That's right. Again, no criticism of the Catholic Church, but they've never understood how to ride the wave. (laughs) <laughs> but I, I think it's worth saying that everybody says the Catholic Church sort of makes things up or, you know, how are they creative? Here was an example of the church saying, you know, these St. George, St. Philomena, St. Catherine, right, St. Christopher, the church said these, guess what, public and believers, these are legendary people and we have no historical evidence that they actually existed. And so where they were demoted was that they were removed from the universal calendar of the church so that there was no day in which they were celebrated. And that's how they were removed. It's not like they made they took an eraser and erased St. Christopher. But that his day was no longer celebrated on the calendar of the church. <laughs> Conrad, can you talk to us a little bit about, it? maybe it's a Catholic-Protestant question, but I feel like there's still confusion do folks today, and perhaps in medieval times, are they to pray to saints or with saints? Because you mm-hmm. read both, and I think it depends on which side of the issue you are on what you think. But well, you know, even in the Middle Ages, they, they mixed up the language. Nobody prays. Um, no one. The term often is worships. No, no one properly speaking worships a saint. They venerate that saint, and through that saint, that veneration. Jeez, uh, that, that veneration. Clearly, you're not supposed to do that. The veneration passes on through the saint to God, and it's the same thing with relics. Um, everyone mixes that language up. But is it an intercessory prayer? Am I praying to that saint to intercede for me to God? In theory, it would be, yeah. In practice, very often, especially in the Middle Ages, people would just focus on that saint. The idea was that they lived in a society in which... Um, in a very strong class society, especially if you're on the bottom and you're a peasant, you had no hope, right, Um, uh, for any kind of, uh, uh, for anyone to listen to you, as it were. So they thought of uh, their religion in the same structures they thought of their society, and that is the people at the top are unapproachable, so you had to have an intermediary. In your own culture, you, if you were a peasant, you go to the local knight, right, Um, and he would intercede for you with the local count or the king or whatever. Uh, The cult of saints in the Middle Ages works just the same way, where you have an intercessory who uh, works for you. That's what changed with the Protestant Reformation, when they said, no, we'll have a direct connection with the divine. We don't need intermediaries. Which, speaking of, thank you for that transition, Martin Luther, we think of him as this great reformer, but I know you have this great story about he actually, early on, got in a bit of a muddle and prayed to, was it St. Anne? In fact, uh, Martin Luther became a priest because he would believe in the saints so much and he was in a tremendous thunderstorm and became very much afraid. And when the, I think, lightning struck the tree, Martin Luther said, oh my God, St. Anne, if you save me, I'll become a monk. 
more grease, and it, well, he did it. <laughs> and, the and the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> and so that it really was a part of his, of his, uh, the, the saints. Uh, in, in that sense, we can truly see that belief in saints have affected human history. Right. I, I would say this is one of those things that has changed over time. In the early days of the church, martyrs themselves could save you from sin. So we have martyrs praying for people who are alive without being asked to do so and getting people martyred, which doesn't sound that great to us. <laughs> but in the early church, you know, that you you do not pass a go. You go directly to heaven. And that was a profound advantage of sainthood. You don't have to wait in the ground until the end of time. So saints could get that for you. And we have some records of saints themselves not only being worshipped, but actually saving people from their sins. Can you talk a little bit, since we're sort of on a Reformation theme here a little bit, about the art. Maybe what happened with painting, because you had a counter-reformation, and the church kind of came back, and, and, and didn't they reintroduce? Yeah, yeah. anyone. Well, to me, one of the interesting things about uh, and we've medieval got saints art here if you want to talk to and them. saints um, and relics is that uh, I think you all know about the pilgrimage where these huge numbers of people would travel uh, to these holy places to venerate these relics. Um, the thing is they expected a special experience. There's a wonderful text from the ninth century in which uh, it, it recounts a local wealthy woman. This is before a money economy. There's some new uh, relics is brought up from the catacombs in Rome, brought up to Germany, and she's very excited. She's rushing to this place with all her people, right, all her servants in a wagon loaded with food and drink and goods because, as I say, it was pre-money economy. She gets so excited when she gets near, she gets out of the wagon and runs ahead to this little church. And the source says, because the place did not glitter with gold and silver, she uttered a contemptuous guffaw, turned around, <coughs> running back and meeting her people, she ordered them to turn around and go back home, saying, there was nothing, nothing holy contained there. In other words, there was a necessity for pilgrimage art, for people to have that experience, which uh, is sometimes called presentia, a feeling of the presence of the holy. Well, an old bone in a box doesn't do that for everyone, but what did do it was having the actual atmosphere of the place altered, right, with a ceiling that was plated in gold. It's awful. So the, the, gli ceiling. the glitzier, the better, That's right? right? Yeah, the more, gold, the more silver, holy. painting, yeah. Uh, and so on, yeah. So this pilgrimage art was actually necessary and it, it changed the entire environment of the place. So when they would come in, stained glass windows. Um, these people were not used to images like we are, where we have so many, we throw them in the trash, you change a channel. We see how many in a day, probably yeah. a young kid might see hundreds. But um, in the Middle Ages, depends on what century, someone might see only one in their whole life until they went to one of these great holy places. They would live in mud, in uh, wattle and daub houses, that is twigs and mud, and they'd go to a place that was actually how they described how heaven would look, and they meant mm -hmm. that literally, mm -hmm. uh, and art was the basis of that. But, it, but it's also interactive. So when you go to those holy places and the light shines through the stained glass windows, you are bathed in that 
bright colorful light that you would never ordinarily see and so the sort of saint's image is reflected on you and you kind of put on the saint there's a story in the bible in acts of the apostles where the shadows of the apostles heals people of their infirmities and it's like that you come into contact with this divine presence and the boundaries between heaven and earth collapse and you get to come into contact with the divine and you can see how affecting that would be for people so much so that in fact um in some of these churches the uh the tomb that the saint was buried in was designed for people not to enter where the body actually was so you'd have a a regular sarcophagus and they would have that would be sealed but then there would be maybe three large holes in the side like portholes and the people would crawl in there to get closer to the body incidents of people getting stuck in there they would scrape the mortar out and eat that they would scrape the stone off and eat that um, with St. Thomas of Canterbury who you know was, how long were they allowed to stay in there oh I think there'd be a big line they'd take, the, they'd take turns <gasps> sort of yeah. like the Terrell show I saw you they can go into that amazing <laughs> that's right so they would this mix. was the cultural event as well that's right. as, as yeah. a sort of a safety insurance for the next life yeah a drop of blood of the saint in a vat of water and they would drink that. They would dip the mummified hand of another saint uh, in the water and they would drink that. And the, and the water that was used to wash the... To, to wash their bodies, to wash... Yeah, <gasps> they, would, they would drink that. Um, and it would bring about miraculous cures. Uh-huh. But just painting a saint or commissioning of a painting of a saint was also you, you sort of earned certain privileges with that, yes. That was in and of itself an act of, <clears throat> it was an act of devotion, yes. Very much so, yeah. There also is an idea um, uh, that to see something in a work of art, not to everybody, but to many people, essentially proved it. And so if someone is depicted as a saint, that there was an old, almost I think maybe a folk mentality that proves it. Right, right. To extend the, the point also away from Roman Catholicism to the Orthodox churches, the very creation of icons yeah. in the Orthodox church, the creation of the saintly images is in and of themselves a religious act, yeah. you know, because every aspect of it is, is to take you inside the world of the saint and of the holy. I've, I've got to tell you a story about icons for one moment. I was in Estonia this summer. And you wonder, you know, about there were so many icons in this religious country before the Soviets had taken it over. And as people left, they tried to take their icons of the saints out and the KGB would confiscate them. In 1989, when they left, the head of the KGB called the head of the art museum at the university in Tartu and said, guess what, we didn't throw them out. <laughs> and they gave the museum 300 icons of the saints. Hmm. Incredible. I wonder what they were doing. They might have had them as a backup. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you would think they were going to destroy them, and they didn't. Oh, that's lovely. I think to modern eyes, many of the visual depictions of the saints, particularly um, the gruesome bits, the, the axe, who was that? St. Peter, the axe in his head, the, the, the spears and the blood coming out of St. Sebastian, Catherine on the wheel. Um, this emphasis, why the emphasis then? It's certainly pretty, pretty rough to look at today. Well, the idea was that um, uh, the more you suffered, the greater witness you made for Christ. And it was also 
good PR, right? So people would come to these places and they would, they'd like these stories. They'd like to hear them. You, people would come to a... a, a I'm, not getting, I'm not getting fresh. Yeah, I think I just need to hold this. I didn't know I jumped around so much. <laughs> I guess that's a bad sign. See, a good teacher, a good professor. Um, uh, they would come to these places and a great pilgrimage site, and actually there might be a priest or a monk there who read the life, the vita, the bi we'd say a biography today, they would read that as the people came, and they would describe all this stuff. And so it wasn't just that you went to a church and you prayed, but all kinds of things would happen. The story would be read. You'd see that in front of you. Um, you might drink something. You'd buy um, uh, a little item to take home. Uh, if someone was cured, miraculously, mm -hmm. the crowd would join uh, in praise. The monks, if it was a monastery, they might actually have a, a spontaneous liturgy. Uh, that would celebrate this, and so on. Uh, local people um, uh, would participate. Sometimes they were honest, sometimes they were dishonest. It's okay, maybe I better just hold it. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, moving, let's... But I, I just add yeah, that please. the passion of the saints, especially in their deaths as martyrs, was all, of course, related to the passion of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so there was this, there's always this association between the two. Yeah, but they get more violent as time goes on. The more competition between different cults of saints, the more scribes will add in additional tortures into the stories to make them more graphic, more gruesome. A lot like horror movies have gotten more gruesome as different directors one up. One but like Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, right? Yeah, and, and the torture itself is a testimony to truth, you know, that they can endure all of this torture in the ancient world meant that what they were saying was true. This is really counterintuitive to us because now we know people will say anything when they're tortured. But in mm -hmm. the ancient world, they associated pain and truth. So the depiction huh. of the gruesomeness was a sign that these people are dying for something real. And in fact, the competition could be so high that um, in these miracle stories, um, in the Middle Ages, they collected them. They called it Liber Miraculorum, books of miracles. So a monastery uh, might collect hundreds of these things. And a lot of these have actually been translated into to English. I mean, I myself must have read near a thousand by now. And they would compete. Yeah. Uh, and the story might be that someone went to the monastery at York and wasn't cured. Uh, the shrine of some saint at York, but they would go down to Canterbury and they would be cured there, right? Or the, even worse, the saint at York would say, go to Canterbury, you'll be cured there. Mm -hmm. Very competitive. Wow. If Bravo was around, then they would have made some great competitive reactions. <laughs> <laughs> the race to be to saint. Um, all the artwork, the artwork that's here at the Getty, and we see in it's in museums now. We don't see it where it was originally meant to be viewed, which was for a very different function. So, is there anything that we today should think about as we go and see the exhibit here and elsewhere, and we read the manuscripts and look at this art? This is not where it was created to be, correct? No, but what the museums do is um, uh, it's easy to say that these works of art, you know, are taken out of their context. They really were part of a sensory saturation of the holy place when you have public art, or like so many of the manuscripts in that, that great uh, exhibit up there right now on saints, that this was for private devotion. But with the Reformation, um, these places were torn apart systematically, right. typically by the government, not, by, not normally by wild mobs, or within the French Revolution. These were all torn apart, and that led 
Yeah, museums had actually sort of started to a certain degree before before that in the West, in the modern early modern West. But it was that that especially then stunned the conscience even of Protestants to think that we have destroyed part of our own culture. And it began with scholars who started on a literary level to try to salvage this lost culture. And then the next step was with these great works of art, which even if people were violently opposed to what they saw as uh, medieval superstition, these were national treasures and were recognized as such. And so we see them now, that's a continuing tradition. And Leonard, you've been, with your collection of esque photos, you've been looking everywhere for all sorts, of, you've been finding all sorts of things on the internet, haven't you, that things well, that should have, that were in churches? My, my absolute interest is in the fact that one of the greatest resources for finding art, religious art in the world is eBay. <laughs> and oh, what you can find on eBay is truly astonishing. And many of the relics that we've talked, spoken about tonight, you can find on eBay being sold for quite a lot of money, including pieces of the True Cross. Wow. I've seen pieces of the True Cross on there quite a, many, many times. And many, many pieces of body parts of saints. Now, eBay has a regulation that you cannot auction off body parts. <laughs> and they have actually rules and regulations for body parts that are meant to be very serious, but they're downright hilarious the way when you read right, them. You can still sell a scalp, right? You can, yeah, you, well, the, and of course, a lot of it had to do with Native American body parts and things like that, not selling those on eBay. But it's, it's, it's truly fascinating to see what they're selling. And uh, I, I use the word in an article, they unmoor these religious objects from the original context. And uh, exactly who are the different people buying them, that alone would make a fascinating study. It's not one you can't homogenize who's buying these things. It's really quite fascinating. I would caution people against buying fragments of the True Cross, though. <laughs> there, there are enough of those to build a small town. You know? In fact, in the Middle Ages, there was the belief that there were so many fragments of the True Cross that it miraculously restored itself. But that is one explanation. There's two in the gift shop here. Yeah. One or two left? Uh, yeah, no. right. But I ask my colleagues a question because I've always wanted to know something that's related to the exhibit. There's a vent, there's a, a set of relics, I'm sorry, reliquaries, so cases for relics in the exhibition site relating to Thomas Beckett, right? Now, if they knew that the king was coming, why didn't they take the relics of Thomas Beckett and hide them? And in fact, are they hidden? And is one day somebody going to find them? You mean in the 16th century yep. with Henry VIII? And yep. the, the, he's talking about the uh, 16th century with the what's called the dissolution of the monasteries. Henry VIII had the relics of Beckett destroyed. Um, there's a controversy. Were these destroyed? Were they hidden? Were they reburied? Right. In the cathedral. Where are they? I want one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the idea is, if they knew he was coming, why didn't they do something about it? Um, well, uh, I think that one thing that's very easy for us to underestimate is that level of bureaucracy, I think, in previous ages. As I said, most of the, you know, I once heard it said on what basis I couldn't begin to guess, but that, I don't know, 95% of medieval religious art has, has been destroyed. Most of that was destroyed. Um, well, a lot of it was done by re, what we call remodeling today. But the art that was destroyed in the Reformation and in the French Revolution was, sometimes was destroyed by an angry mob, but uh, it's my understanding that it, that normally was not the case. It was destroyed by a bureaucracy. Um, the church 
uh, at that time was part of the government, and I don't believe that they would have taken that action um, independently. I think it would have been too scary to do such a thing. Laissez majesté. I think they would have known they would have all lost their heads if they had done such a thing, because people were literally losing their heads at the time for standing up to the church. Let's talk, let's, let's talk specifically about relics. I feel like we sort of circled around relics and reliquaries, but I've always wondered how the relic gets from the departed body to the reliquary. Is that, is that somebody's job? How do you get, how does the bone, the toenail, the hair actually get there? It's kind of a nuts and bolts question. There actually is an order of nuns in Rome that does that. So in the case, wow. uh, in the case there, I was, we were sharing, I was sharing in the back in Philadelphia, there, is, there are several saints buried uh, of American origin. So Mother Catherine Drexel's tomb is near in the suburbs, and in the city is St. John Neumann, who was the fourth bishop of Philadelphia. And for years, they would go into the body and remove a piece of the thigh bone, and then take synapterome and shave it off. And then they would make relics out of that. Now, my students used to always get there was more glue than relic <laughs> on it. But it was definitely a tiny piece of bone. I know a student of mine, in fact, who was afflicted with blob with cancer of the eye, wrote to the do several orders in Rome and was sent first-class relics. A first-class relic is an actual piece. Maybe all, I'm sure many of you know this, a piece of the body of a saint, an actual piece of the body and was sent many of those relics back in the mail to help him with, with his uh, healing, huh. interestingly enough. So there really are, that is still very much going on today in Rome, I believe, even though some order, like Mother Catherine Drexel, I wanted to know where can I get a relic of Mother Catherine Drexel, and they said that, in fact, that the order doesn't really like that, and because people are alive who knew her, they have not exhumed her body. In the case of John Neumann, they did exhume his body, and that's when they took the relics, and that was more of an Italian-German order that was into that sort of thing. Hmm. Now, did these nuns keep, like, like Canada was saying about, you know, how many crosses have we already had fragments of, did they keep sort of an anatomical track? Because how many, how many, because well, that guy has the longest thigh bone be, in the world. Because, I mean, isn't it fascinating? Because they knew her, because they knew her when she was alive, some of the older sisters, they had evidence that that was her body in that tomb, yeah. and so they didn't open it up. But then you have second-class relics, which would have been things that she wore, or things that she possessed, yeah. and things like that, which would be used as relics. Of course, in the Middle Ages, they weren't so organized. Uh, <laughs> there were two different heads of St. John the Baptist in different places, which led one medieval what critic to ask was St. John Bicephalus. <laughs> also, there's a tale of one saint who, because the monks were afraid that the local bishop would take his body and use it for um, uh, a pilgrimage, uh, but they wanted to do the same thing, that they boiled him down before he was even cold to get the meat off, as it were, because it's the bone that's longer lasting. Um, and another very interesting story from uh, what's called the Desert Fathers, um, these early Christian saints in Egypt especially, uh, fourth century um, uh, and so on, where one of these famous saints felt he was dying. So he went with, took one uh, disciple and went out into the desert uh, and waited to die, to be buried in a secret place. So the local, as he put it, rich man 
would not take his body and turn it into a, a pilgrimage to make money off of. Hmm. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about maybe getting off the gruesomeness, but what is the, what was the value for the worshiper at the time? Whether it was just in the veneration process, the value of having something physical. Was there, was there something, why was that so important? Right, well this is your way to really come in contact with this individual that you respect and revere. As Jesus becomes more important in the history of Christianity, he also becomes a little bit more distant. And saints and martyrs are sort of, they're regular individuals who kind of sort of superseded all the expectations to sort of spiritually overachieve. And you can understand their struggles and you feel a personal connection with them. And you want to get as close to them as you can. Um, anyone who's been bereaved will hold on to cherished objects from loved ones. Sometimes you'll keep a lock of hair. So we do this. We still have relics, you know, Elvis Presley's guitars, you know, and so this is what people want, but as Conrad was saying, not all saints are happy to be carved up like pieces of meat, and so we have martyrs saying, if you divide up my body when I die, I will curse you, um, and this is because, you know, the more high status martyrs, um, everyone wanted a piece of them, quite literally. So when St. Stephen from Acts of the Apostles was discovered in Jerusalem, they divided up his body and sent it to all the churches. And this is the case even today. Some relics are harder to come into contact with. If you go to Rome, St. Peter's behind glass, there's a box, doesn't have his relics in it. And then if you're, if you're there in Rome, you'll notice there are a bunch of popes no one's looking at. <laughs> And everyone's crowded around John Paul II. So those high-status relics, they have to be protected. Hmm. Now, you spoke of going to Rome, how, what it was like for the sort of spiritual pilgrim 500 oh. years ago. You said it was something like a Disneyland. What, kind, what kinds of things could, could the spiritual tourist see if he was looking for relics in Rome back then? Spiritual Disneyland, Ark of the Covenant, manna from the desert, Christ's foreskin, Christ's umbilical cord, milk from the breast of the virgin, uh, the original tablets of the Ten Commandments, hmm. on and on it goes. Uh, as a matter of fact, I once tried to interest someone into uh, finding where these are today because these would never be thrown away. They would be taken out of, I think, public view, but they're certainly not going to. They're in the home of Steven Spielberg, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Now, the kitsch is certainly still a component, right? I mean, you're, you're an expert on more contemporary Catholic kitsch. Well, I mean, the, the people still the love the saints, and so uh, I think people, many people can't afford expensive things, even going on eBay and getting relics or other kinds of images, and so they go and get very cheaply made mass-produced objects, and they really still make those very much a part of their lives, uh, I think. It's, it's important to remember that we also are in a generation now where there are many people who are illiterate about religion and don't really know much about the saints. For example, I was astonished in my class the other week where I was actually teaching about the saints and a student raised his hand, God love him, and said, do you mean tell me that St. Louis, the city, is named after a saint? Oh. <laughs> and I... I said, I said, and, you know, and at that point, as we know, you either like faint or you think I just educated this person. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I went home happy that day. 
and there is some nice medieval kitsch uh, at the Getty today. Uh, in the St. Albans Canterbury exhibit, they have a, a lead pelt, what's called a pilgrim's badge. The pilgrims would go to these places and the rich pilgrims would buy expensive things. The average pilgrims would buy typically little lead badges that had the image of the saint or um, the coats of arms or something, and they would sew it on their hat or sew it on their cape. And sometimes they make cover themselves with these things. And I don't know, it depends on your age. If you remember the back of the old Volkswagen bus, it had decals from all over the country on them. That was the medieval equivalent. Honk if you like saints. Yeah. <laughs> I want to. Can I, can I do one yeah, thing please. before we get away from this but imagery? Yeah. Uh, I've got two images here that I'd like to show. And number one, um, they have to do with um, contemporary sainthood. And I'm sure some of you have read about this or heard about it in the last few months. And that is that in April, Pope John Paul II is going to be canonized. Now, Pope John the 23rd, <laughs> who died in 1963, is going to be canonized, and he's a perfect example of what we were speaking about, because, in fact, when he was on the road to canonization, they went into the area below the main altar of the Vatican and went to his tomb and exhumed his body. When they exhumed it, what did they find? He was incorrupt, which meant that his body had not decayed since 1963. And so they took his body up and placed it in an altar in the Vatican. Oh my gosh, we just so happen to have that image right here for you. <laughs> and so there he is, in, dressed in his papal robes, uh, in his state of preservation. And so it's, it's this fascinating to think that this, uh, obviously you do, not have to, you do not have to believe in the reality of that to be a Roman Catholic. But here's the perfect example of the institutional church sort of demonstrating its own vernacular Catholicism within the institution itself. Because I think our talk tonight, I can't remember, I think it was built a bit of whether we still need saints. So we probably need to like fast forward several hundred years for the last few minutes here and talk about maybe saints today. And I'm wondering, what can we learn from saints when it comes to... Uh, Success, suffering, status—just to name a few things. What, what can we, what can we moderns or postmoderns, learn from saints on any of those things or in our relationship to God? Well, I think that we as moderns um, sort of underestimate ourselves. So we definitely try to avoid suffering. Like, there's no reason to feel pain. Um, I have a headache. I'll take some Advil. Or um, we also underestimate the extent to which certain kinds of sins are sort of natural. You know, we should really cut ourselves some slack. Um, it's quite difficult to be perfect. And what we see in saints, and in so many of these stories, we see these individuals who often live these debauched lives. Um, they were scandalous. And, and yet, despite that, they can really overcome that background, those experiences, and really take a hold of something better for themselves. And I think that's a, a good example to hold on to. I can tell you one thing I, every saint had, and that's endurance, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. something you can't have enough of, I think. Yeah, yeah. Do you, I have an atheist friend who refers to his mother as a saint. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> do you have to have a personal faith to believe in saints? <laughs> Well, again, there's... You get three academics in a room. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you 
have to have faith in something, not necessarily a connection to institutional religion, but you certainly have to feel that there is an efficacy to the sacred and an efficacy to the connection of the saint that way. Mm -hmm. And that's what I tie that into my last image that I'd like to show you, and that is of the most popular folk saint today who has grown since the year 2000 in Mexico and among Mexican-Americans, and that is this saint right here, Santa Muerta, Saint Death, that is absolutely condemned by the Catholic Church, obviously. It is something that is uh, emerging out of the, you know, pre-Columbian civilization of Mexico, just like the Day of the Dead is. And uh, it joins the ranks of other skeletal saints. There's one in Argentina, I believe, and there's one in Guatemala. But this is identified as a female saint. And he is, I'm sorry, she is the patron saint of prostitutes, the patron saint of drug sellers. And also, and if you saw that miniseries, or not that show on one of the cable uh, Breaking Bad, you often saw this shown him among the drug sellers and things like that. And yet also people pray to St. Puerta for healing, for getting a new house, for getting a new job, for economic problems. And so it's, I think, this a fascinating example of the relevance and efficacy of the notion of St. today. Well, I think we're about out of time. So very quickly, as a final question, I wonder, are we today missing out on anything um, by really not being as interested in saints as, as, as people were 500 years ago, are we missing something? Are we, are we diminished? Have we lost something? I think saints are models, and society changes and always has models that remain contemporary, whether they're religious models or not. Yeah, I think we still have mm. models, you know, Princess Diana, or we have a lot of live models, mm. and they might not always be good examples, they might be anti-examples, but we certainly still have them. Yeah, so holiness is out of the equation, perhaps, in this. What are you saying about Kim Kardashian? I'm sorry. <laughs> Final word is yours, monsieur. I mean, uh, uh, I really didn't know much about Santa Muerta until recently, and I think this is a perfect example of the relevance that of saints that they're not going out, that they're as important in certain people's lives as ever. And so just when we think that the world is getting very secular, it's not. Mm. It's, as, it's, as in, it's as interested in religion and the sacred as ever. Well, I thank you for your time. We've gone from the ascetic to the aesthetic to eBay. So, <laughs> thank you. If I understood you correctly, early on, saints were acclaimed while they were still alive? And if I did understand that correctly, when did that change? There would be people who were known as saints while they were still alive, but that, that was, is not really the way. Usually someone is, a, is a, because what a saint is, is someone who's understood to go directly to heaven after they die. Um, there's, there's two kinds of judgments, uh, individual judgment and general judgment. People who, most people don't go directly to heaven according to medieval Catholic belief. Uh, most people wait in purgatory, uh, you know, until that final judgment, the general judgment. So a saint is someone who people believe goes straight to heaven. So you couldn't actually be an honest-to-goodness saint in your lifetime because you might still do something that would keep you from getting there. Though by popular belief, they did say, yeah, there was such a thing as a living saint. That's a difference between popular religion and uh, the institution, uh, trying to maintain and control and 
keeping the people from doing things like the Santa Muerta. Conrad, you talked about the um, bureaucracy of the, I think it was the 16th century, and that the church was kind of owned by the, Angl by the uh, state of England. Uh, Candida earlier mentioned a, 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 a relation between the early um, martyrs and the, the early church and the Romans, the Roman governor, this famous, this kind of this uh, typical martyr was the daughter of the Roman emperor, and the emperor and the relation to the church was very different. I'm wondering if you can uh, comment on, on that change, maybe his, from a historical perspective, and maybe uh, uh, to connect with Leonard and his comment about the relevance of the sacred to today. Uh, you know, what, what do you see as the contemporary equivalent of these, these pilgrimages where people are working together or, or crossing ethnic and, and religion and, and, um, cultural lines and walking together. Um, you know, where do you see that reflection of that common feeling of the experience that Conrad, for example, did in Spain? You're looking at me. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure I followed all of those questions. But I think the early Roman story is indicative of the All of these saint stories, I mean, in my experience, sometimes they're a little hard to understand. Uh, really, one of my specialties is the old texts. They always have a purpose. Um, sometimes they seem, by modern standards, to be kind of silly or so. But I think that expresses generational change. It's radical change that took place in that early Christian period between generations. Um, you mentioned the pilgrimage. <clears throat> well, you know, when I did the pilgrimage in 1996, um, I did it because I practiced my Latin reading um, a 12th century pilgrim's guide. And at a certain point, I realized this is a do-it-yourself manual. And I thought, I'll go do it. And about two or three months before I did it, a friend sent me a modern guide to the pilgrimage, which tells you, you know, where you could spend the night and so on. And it was essentially the same thing as the 12th century guide, because you walk, right? You stay in exactly the same places and so on. I thought at first I'd be seen as a kook, and the farmers would be, you know, shooting me with their shotguns. But not so, because so many people still did it. Um, and that, uh, you know, also is a sort of a generational thing. I'm a bit older than I look. Um, I'm not religious. Um, and it was my understanding that the pilgrimage had largely died out. In fact, um, tens of thousands of people do the Santiago pilgrimage I, I believe every single year. And in special years, maybe as much as 100,000, I believe. Wow. Do you all remember the other band? Well, I mean... I'm always fascinated when you watch these horrible shows on television. Should I be saying that in Los Angeles? <laughs> um, when they talk about, you know, you're going on a journey, they say, oh, thank you for, what is that, um, what is that one about? They're in a desert island or they're somewhere, they're, you know, they're trying to, they're in a jungle and they're, they say, well, oh, gee, I've experienced this journey of being tortured for six months or whatever. You know, by, by having them do all these things to them to, to put on the television. A survivor. And a survivor, right? And it's the idea of journeying is still intrinsically a part of the human condition. And so whether it's a sacred pilgrimage or a secular pilgrimage, it's still a part of what makes us human. And we have, in America, certainly substituted a lot of secular pilgrimages. Disneyland, Disney World, the Super Bowl right, that people cannot miss, like they would have not missed in the Middle Ages going to the shrine of a saint, but there are still shrines and there are still religious pilgrimages that people engage in as well. Hmm. I would say that, I think this is one of your questions, that um, saints are sort of countercultural. 
whether they're speaking to Roman governors or whether they're monks who refuse to sort of show proper deference to bishops, they are the people who speak truth to power, regardless of the consequences. And I think that that's a sort of enduring quality and a sort of a common strain to saints. I'm going to get the compliment of what, what Candida said, that that is one saint or contemporary person up for sainthood who is really fascinating in the way she sort of contests the tradition is the woman, the very famous American Catholic, Dorothy Day. Mm. And Dorothy Day is obviously well-known. She writes about it in her book, The Long, Long, Long Loneliness, that she had an abortion. And so for, for Roman, and that she, communist. well, the, yeah, exactly, but it's the abortion yes. issue for Catholicism, which is the big one, and yet she's very seriously be, being considered for a saint today. The stories about the saints and whether they're real or made up is kind of a touchstone that you read in today's world with all the pressure on it, and it can take you off your normal street or profession or your life of buy and sell and perhaps push you in a spiritual way or help you to go along a spiritual path. So, you know, almost it seems that the whether it's true or made up or not, it's it's just a way to, to get you on a pathway that's so much different than perhaps what the modern world yeah, offers is, to you. And is that something you could comment that on? That is very much the point, um, it's, as I said, I've read so many uh, of these miracle stories, and saints' lives and so on now. Um, some of these stories are so unbelievable that you would think people at the time wouldn't believe them, but that's not the point. We think that they have to represent something that was understood as true, but I don't believe that that was the case. I think very often they were stories that illustrated a point. If someone a thousand years from now looked at our TV shows, and they thought, people believed that? They never would. But as I, when, I, when I say something to my son, like, this is, this is stupid. He says, no, Dad, you don't understand. They're not really fighting as in a real fight. That it's almost like a, a ballet, right? But that is very much the case, that these stories, when you read the theory, um, medieval theory of preaching, they always say you should entertain. You should reach different levels of the audience. And that's what these stories do, I think, just as you've, pretty much pointed out. To those who want to sort of, not, I'm not suggesting this was your question, but the idea that these were just sort of great people we should kind of admire. If you could bring back any of those saints today and, and describe them separating out their faith, I don't think they would probably recognize themselves because the faith was so central to who they are, right? I mean, yeah. we can't sort of just make them into good, nice heroes because it was central to everything they did, wasn't, wasn't it? I think yes and no. Um, I think uh, I'm about to reveal that I'm from England, if you couldn't tell. Um, I think it's akin to the George Washington cherry tree. Cherry tree. Thank oh. you. Cherry tree story, right? There's a lot of evidence that never happened, but it's a story that encapsulates something about him. He was an honest, good person. So whether or not there was this cherry tree incident, it really reveals something about his character That's right. that was true yeah. regardless of the individual story. Yeah. That's a traditional way of telling tales. Yeah, the traditional point, yeah. You guys have talked a lot about the saints sort of pre-Reformation. What happened after the Reformation to the saints? You know, Henry VIII was so busy dissolving the churches, and I'm just curious, historically, I know the Episcopalian Church keeps a lot of the saints, but how are they selected? And I'm just, I've always wondered about that. 
Essentially, uh, the process became frozen in the other Christian traditions, and Roman Catholicism was the only one that continued the actual steps to sainthood. Now, the, the Orthodox Church also still, if you will, canonizes individuals as saints. So, uh, there aren't necessarily more saints in the Protestant Christian traditions as there are in Roman Catholicism. I think it's, it might it's well known uh, for those that study the papacy of John Paul II that he canonized more people than there had been in hundreds of years previous to him. And so the, the saint, that idea of saints is that he saw them as being relevant for contemporary life and was constantly searching for people like that to, you know, to put up as role models. So that part of it is continued. And saints always represent the cultures that they live in. So the early Christian saints' martyrdom, that was something that was expected at that level of witness. Uh, medieval saints, it was typically asceticism, that they would go off into what was called the desert, even though it might be the most beautiful part of southern France, and lead this ascetic life, right? You don't eat too much, you don't drink too much, and so on. And the modern saints then addressed those concerns that modern society has. Right, there were a lot of saints canonized in the middle of the 20th century in the Catholic Church who were as sort of response to feminism and um, to sort of the 1960s that were women who had lived these traditional family lives and had died in the place of taking chemotherapy that might have killed their unborn child, for example. And so those saints were really, took the temperature of Catholicism in the middle of the 20th century, trying to push back against feminism and the cultural revolution and things like that. There's an interesting controversy going on right now in the Orthodox Church, and that is concerning the re the relics, if you will, or the remains of the Tsar's family. And since they have discovered them since the end of the Soviet Union, there is the Russian Orthodox Church would like to have them proclaimed as martyrs and therefore saints. And so there's a real controversy going on about whether that is or is not going to be done. To, to that question, isn't there a fundamental different understanding in the Protestant church when one speaks about the communion of saints being all the faithful? I mean, going back to the idea of Paul, isn't it just maybe a fundamental difference in what a saint who, who what, what a saint is? Right, or um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They're all saints. Um, in Protestant tradition, going back to Paul, everyone's a saint. Everyone's part of this everyone community. Everyone professes a belief. Yeah, everyone, yeah. Yeah. everyone who's part of your community is a right. saint, yeah. Now that we're presided by Santa Muerte, uh, do, you, do you care, uh, any of you care to, go, to comment when people take the saints and cross that very thin line between religion and magic? The distinction between religion and magic is often in the eye of the beholder. St. Peter gets into this famous duel with the magician Simon Magus, um, and they're flying around and they're raising people from the dead. One of them is a saint, and the other is a magician. So that line is, is very easy to cross, um, given that it's really in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, it's what today we, you wouldn't use these terms, but it's what we today call the difference between white magic and black magic, I believe. But by white magic, it has to be understood that in fact um, it is uh, a, a miracle uh, performed by God through the saint, is the way that that's understood. You know, I, I, these are very slippery terms, and what magic means or doesn't mean can be defined in many, many different perspectives. I mean, some 
uh, some people would be offended if I said that transubstantiation was a form of magic, or if it could be, if it could be examined that way, or, you know, parsed that way. And so uh, that's a very interesting term that is sort of difficult to play with. I did once read a, a black magic curse from the Middle Ages, uh, from a text that survived. Uh, this was old. Um, it was 10th century or something. And, oh, 95% of the language was Christian. Right. What, what do you mean? Um, when this person wanted to kill some, their neighbor's cow, right? This was the point of this curse. Um, it was all God and the saints and so on. He was appealing to them. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, which, of course, is not Christianity because uh, that would be a manipulation of Christianity somehow. Yeah, this was not like you see in television where they're, they're conjuring up Satan or something. That's not how it was done in this particular case. And generally speaking, it's my understanding that that, that was the normal way until I imagine that age of, of um, really it, it came about with the Protestant Reformation, as I understand it, uh, the witch trials of um, the 17th century, which took place not just in, in Massachusetts, but um, throughout Protestant Europe I as well. I think we have this... Sparks for an entirely different, another conversation <laughs> issue another night from, from that question. Thanks again. I want to thank our panelists, and I also want to thank the Getty for co-presenting this program with us. And thank you so much for being here.